A Sickness in Time by M.F. Thomas and Nicholas Berkettle. Narrated by Roseanne Sinclair. Chapter 16 Josh pounded on the walls. He yelled. He sulked. He indulged in fantasies of brawling his way to freedom like a game hero punching out AI hooligans. Eventually, he ate the apple and the nutrient bar, and napped, and peed a little in the trash can. None of it changed his circumstances. He wished he had something to work with. His kingdom for a pencil. A long time later, the door slid open again, and another tray with another glass of water and another nutrient bar was pushed in. This time there was a banana. Josh had been on exotic holidays to resorts with no network signal. It was now a luxury adventure to find silence, and his fellow travelers had experienced it with all the bemused obtuseness of tourists in a slum. They played at privacy in a world they had assured would have none. But those trips were coordinated, scheduled. There was perpetual activity to drag you away from the gnawing knowledge of silence. This was different. This was absolute lack of stimulus, access, and distraction. Getting punished with this as a kid had nurtured and sharpened Josh's teenage resentment. How dare his parents? How dare anybody leave him alone with his thoughts? He imagined Min Jun sitting in the lotus position in a corner, smiling and relaxed. He didn't even think he'd ever seen Min Jun in the lotus position, but that posture, along with his big Buddha statues and all that damn tea, lived in the same corner of Josh's brain that Min Jun did. And sometimes they made strange associations. It was at least a little racist. And that was never fun to know. Maybe it was racist of him, but all stereotypes come from somewhere. It had been a day or two since his kidnapping, depending on how long he'd been unconscious. The phrase, Saul for X, floated around in his mind, where X represented the time he spent drugged. There was no mirror. His nose told him he smelled ugly. Although he'd never been obsessed with hygiene, he had to admit that a shower and shave would have been amazing right then. He kept his thoughts light. It was better to be shallow and focused on comforts, to think about one of Minjin's miracle baths, or the indignity of the toilet situation, or the way that couch made his back ache, than to think about Sierra. There's no more destructive mental loop than the one inside a parent that says your child may or may not be in danger and there's nothing you can do about it. Those thoughts were horrible, and they would do nothing for him. It felt dangerous to even think his daughter's name, as if that might be all that was necessary for someone to hack the knowledge of her location right out of his brain. That truth, his share of the responsibility for it, his turn of fortune, no, it was far better to fixate on a bruised banana and the rudeness of his hosts. Since they weren't killing him, why be rude? When Min Jin and Leah finally made it to the lab, they didn't find Josh. Instead, they were met with blacked-out monitors and halls swept clean of any evidence pointing to where he might have gone or been taken. 
The longer they walked the sparkling clean corridors asking other scientists if they'd seen Josh and searching both the obvious and not so obvious places where he might have left a message, the sick ball of dread in Min Jin's stomach grew. Without a way to contact his daughter, work was all Josh had. There was literally no other place in the world Min Jin could think of where his friend might be. And the painful irony of it all was the very measures Josh had implemented to keep them safe made it impossible to find out what had really happened while Min Jin had been in Paris. For lack of better action to take, Min Jin showed Leah their section of the lab with a combination particle accelerator that launched their messages into the past. The block that said hello, my friend Josh was still sitting on the shelf between two orchids where Min Jin had sent it many months ago. It had been his most sophisticated launch, working alone. And he was proud of that, no matter how much more radical the work with Josh had become. It also memorialized a moment that he valued greatly, the start of their partnership. Leah ran her hands over the engraved metal of the original slab, fascinated. I shouldn't have trusted that marker we found. Maria didn't. Looking back, I can see why. The language just didn't feel right. So curt and dismissive. You and Josh were different. Thorough in one way, but very vague in another. Almost poetic. But we rationalized away our doubts because we wanted it to be true. Our instincts often yield to our desires, Minjin admitted. Memory yields. Leah turned and looked at him. Josh said that in his speech. The one that lit everyone's hair on fire. At last, memory yields. Wise words. A dumb opening, Leah replied. Josh told everyone in that room up front that they were venal and stupid, himself included. Nobody wants to hear what you have to say after that, but it's how I first guessed he might be the one behind the messages. He was smart enough, rich enough. He had this flash of conscience and the timing seemed right. What with the Kentred Gary stuff happening? I did whatever homework I could, but it was still a miracle I turned out to be right. I'm not good at that stuff, and I didn't want to poke around so much that it would look suspicious. Not that there was any reason people would be watching me specifically. Uncomfortable, Leah turned and fidgeted with the orchid, moving the simple glass vase one way and then the other. It's weird, and I feel like a jerk for even thinking about it. But I wondered if I was, you know, important. I didn't know if any of the people in the future knew that I was helping Maria. Looking back, I'm not sure if I really helped at all. I was trying, but I was pretty messed up back then. Min Jin gently moved the orchid aside. We first just heard about you as the roommate when Dr. Qualls was giving us general information about Maria to determine if she was reliable. None of us were really sure how to judge, and it seemed as though we were running out of options. So we took her, knowing only that you existed. Later, when we were trying to work out a means to alleviate Maria's financial worries, we concocted a method for her to unobtrusively win a million dollars with a lottery ticket. She insisted that it be two million and said it wasn't just to take care of her, but to take care of you as well. 
She said she couldn't do this without you. The person on the other side of the door was not who Josh expected to see. He thought he might see Catholic or some anonymous flunky. But there she was. Anna Louisa Gill, one of his former allies and the business partner he'd worked with not only the most, but the longest. While he'd often proven temperamental and mercurial in managing others, she'd been brilliant at managing him, which had probably kept him from bankruptcy at least three times. He had distanced himself from her the moment he made the speech. He tried to remember the look on her face as he bustled off the stage before she had uttered what he thought would be her last words to him. Good luck. There had been shock, yes, and confusion too, but those had been on every face in the room. On Anna Louisa's face, though, he thought he'd seen, or maybe he just imagined, a flash of a smile, as if to say, finally, you made a mess bigger than I can keep you out of. Josh had prepared a menu of responses and strategies for what might happen when the door finally opened for longer than it took to slip a meal in. They were neatly arranged on a sort of blackboard in his mind, like a flowchart. Anna Louisa might as well have chucked eggs at his blackboard. The only response he could manage was, What the hell? Oh, Josh, she replied, you should see yourself. The worry on her face scrambled Josh's assumptions that he was in the middle of some sinister scenario. This frustrated him, as problems which turned out to have hidden extra layers always did. The smell isn't me, he insisted. Well, not entirely. There wasn't a toilet, so I had to use the trash can. Technically, I guess it's all me now. Are you evil now? Anna Louisa rounded her lips and blew out a column of air. You made yourself impossible to get a hold of, Josh. For good reason. I had to take some drastic steps, and when you work with people like the ones I hired to bring you here, they don't always respect schedules or people. I only just arrived an hour ago. Please, come with me. There's a suite waiting for you where you can clean up. A suite? Where am I? Anna Louisa's face tightened. I'm not going to tell you. Right now, I know you want to escape. I hope, well, I hope if we have time to talk that you'll change your mind. About what? About just everything. She turned and started walking down the corridor. The door stayed open, so Josh followed. She was right, of course. He did want to escape, and walking out the door increased the odds of that. Can you do it yourself? Minjin had known the question was coming. As they sat without solace, without a plan, naturally Leah would ask if the one weapon they had could be used. He looked plaintively at the control panel. Yes and no. Before Josh arrived, sending that plate over there from the accelerator to that shelf was the height of my abilities. With the algorithms he programmed in and from my experience watching him on other launches, 
I'm sure I could do better now. But to send a full message that far back, the odds are infinitesimal. Why? It was a simple enough question, but took so much answering. Minjin did the best he could to explain the restrictions of their process in layman's terms without digging too far into the physics. That's why it was always these slabs of metal, so the weight would be precise. Precise and predictable. Ink evaporates. Wood rots. No organic processes are happening in the metal at a rate that will significantly change its mass before we send it. Also, bacteria won't live on its surface, and even its capacity to hold a static charge has been reduced as far as possible. Even a moat of dust won't stick to it. But what if we prepared something and, I don't know, quickly weighed it and then just sent it off before it could change too much? Clean rooms, right? That's what you call them? Don't you have clean rooms and robot arms? Whatever the coordinates are, you could put rough estimates in, then get the final weight, make your adjustments, and then, then bang, you know? Leah was becoming excited, pantomiming the process as she imagined it. In theory, everything you say could work, but when we're talking about that much time into the past, an error on the level of a millionth of a percent will ensure that the object will never land in this solar system. You have just asked if I can do something many times more difficult than I've ever done before. And now you have asked if, in addition, I can do it while blindfolded and standing on my head. As Josh would say, we need to control the variables. Josh isn't here. It's only us. And Maria. Saving her might be the only way to save Josh. Min Jin leaned forward, face intensely grave. Do you know what happens when you change the past? Beyond the security we had to keep, it's one of the strongest reasons Josh and I never solicited help here in our time. When you change the past, whatever life you've lived after that moment, including all the memories of the experiences you would have had after that, is wiped out. We live new lives all the way from the moment of change up until now, and that change cannot be undone. I have never known someone to ask what I ask of you now. If we send something back to your roommate when the stakes are this high, you might not survive until now at all. Are you willing to sacrifice the life you have had since then entirely with no knowledge of what life you might live instead and no promise that you will improve Maria's life at all? Leah was quiet for a long time. She seemed to be looking inward. Her lips moved subtly, as if she were talking to herself and making the movement out of instinct. Then her head tilted. She clasped her hands together in her lap, and a vast grief took over her face. Some things in the universe make you feel small because they aren't fair, or they have nothing to do with you, but you're stuck with the consequences. Things suck, and we automatically think, why is this happening to me? I guess that's ego. Everybody feels it. Her face hardened. This is different, though. It's wrong that she's dead. 
If we're changing history, going back and forth between that time and now, making it different each time, whatever this is here is wrong. If she's dead, it, it can't be right. This can't be where it all stops. And it's not just my ego talking here. Something is wrong with everything if she dies back then. Does that make any sense to you at all? Slowly, Minjin nodded. I have never heard it put into words so well. I am convinced. He sighed and looked back at the control panel. We must try. Power dinners were Ana Luisa's forte. Josh had seen her move half a billion dollars from someone else's column to theirs just through the way she worked a meal. In the same way that some people were seemingly born to throw a football, Ana Luisa was born to conjure up equal parts charm and power in the way she savored a glass of wine and carved into a fine cut of meat. She could conduct a meal like a battle campaign. Disarming chit-chat over salad came first. She saved her cannons of confidence for the next course, a strategy which always shook loose details the other party had sworn they would hold in reserve. The inexorable lean of grave concerns over the party's demands pressed them out of their trenches during the second course. And, finally, victory came during dessert, followed by a warm celebration of harmony with the newly conquered over coffee. So when Josh entered an antique-styled study with a table set for two and saw her seated opposite an empty chair, he knew what was in store for him. He was no longer an ally. He was a battle objective. He had no doubt she would leave the meal with something. His only chance was to figure out what she wanted in advance and figure out a way to surrender a facsimile she would accept. It's good to see you cleaned up, Josh. You cut a dynamic figure when you want to. Josh wondered if he should simply act insane, start combing his hair with the fork and gibbering about Nazis on the moon. The rules of social custom tilted every contest in the favor of masters like Ana Luisa. Just a few unrefusable requests could cost you everything. Playing the lunatic would certainly disable a few assumptions. Of course, the time to play crazy would have been before he'd bathed. And Josh still fancied that he could play it straight. He didn't want Ana Luisa to shut down. He wanted her to tell him what was really going on. So the fork stayed where it belonged, and he sat. I can see you packed your closer wardrobe. Didn't you wear that bracelet when we landed the North Sea deal? She smiled. It's funny. I rarely remember what I wear, but I always remember what I eat. It was salmon that night. Very fresh. What's on the menu tonight? Her smile grew even wider, and Josh felt like that conveyed the true answer long before she could start talking about food. In this case, time is not as important as space. It rarely creates a problem if we miss time by a minute or so in either direction. But if the deviation takes us too far away spatially, the whole endeavor is useless. 
So we must find a space which is as large as possible, but isolated enough that only Maria will find what we send. Leah had changed into some white, disposable lab clothing that almost caused her to fade into the paint behind them. She was occupying Josh's seat in the cafeteria, but unlike Josh, she was transfixed by the mountains outside. I used to be afraid of the outdoors, she said. I didn't even realize it. The first time Maria took me camping, I acted really weird and finally just lost it. I lost it a lot back then. It wasn't the outdoors' fault, though. It was the asshole I had been married to. I never went skiing. Always kind of wanted to. I think I would have been good at it. Now, I've got old bones. And any snow-covered mountain costs more money to get to than I've got. Minjun was patient. In very little time, he had sensed both awareness and great intelligence in Leah. She had absolutely heard everything he had said and understood its importance. Her roundabout path to verbalizing her thoughts was obviously the result of some crucial emotional fail-safes she had built. Every person had their own unique, moated fortresses they put between themselves and others. For her to come out to speak all that, he recognized had not always been possible. Sure enough, without even looking away from the mountains, she answered him, I think I know a place, and the message can be small, the smallest message you've ever sent. That will make it easier. Then you'll send another. Will I? Yes. The first message only needs to get her off her ass. I already have that one. The second one, the one you'll send to the fail-safe location, that's the one you can put the details in. Minjun didn't know for sure if it was his contemplative nature which drew out the decisive qualities in others. He could, after all, only live in his own skin. But it did seem that whenever he needed someone around to say what was going to be done, whomever he was with found it within themselves to do it. It had been harder for Leah to make this move than almost anyone he'd met. And Min Jun took her resolve as a compliment. Her faith in him did a great deal to soothe the sudden terror of the challenge he was about to face. A Sickness in Time by M.F. Thomas and Nicholas Sirkettle. Narrated by Roseanne Sinclair. Remember, if you'd like a free autographed copy of A Sickness in Time, just write a review on iTunes or your podcast network and email a picture of it to mfthomasauthor at icloud.com. Are you a fan of historical mysteries and fiction? Read or listen to the first novel by M.F. Thomas and Nicholas Thurkettle. Seeing by Moonlight. Kirkus Reviews called it a complex thriller that offers new revelations up until the very end. The book's science fiction elements drives the major plot twists, but the most engaging scenes are those in which readers learn the real relationships and histories between the characters. A Sickness in Time by M.F. Thomas and Nicholas Thurkettle. Narrated by Roseanne Sinclair. 